It's often uncomfortable being the rookie on the team, but it turns out that being the new kid on the block can pay off in some pretty big ways if you're willing to be smart about it. On this episode, Liz Wiseman returns to the show to help us all leverage our rookie smarts. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 340. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. The best leaders I know are always learning, they're growing, they're asking good questions. It's many of the things we hear about in leadership books that we read and in the conversations on the show. And yet, there is the tendency for a lot of us when we get into difficult situations, and sometimes just the everyday situations, to want to be the expert, to aspire to be the expert. And today's guest is really going to challenge us to think a little bit more like a rookie. I am really glad to welcome back to the show Liz Wiseman. Liz teaches leadership to executives and emerging leaders around the world. She's listed on the Thinkers 50 ranking and named as one of the top 10 leadership thinkers in the world. And she's the recipient of the 2016 ATD Champion of Talent Award. A former executive at Oracle Corporation, she worked over the course of 17 years as the VP of Oracle University and as the global leader for human resource development. She is the author of three best-selling books, including Multipliers, which she was on the show previously speaking to us about, and the book she's here to speak with us here about today called Rookie Smarts. Liz, I am so glad to welcome you back to the show. Well, Dave, it's good to be back. You know, I was just thinking... You had me at the title for your show, Coaching for Leaders, because these are two of my favorite topics. So Mm, super fun to talk with you. Well, great. I am, uh, as I mentioned to you offline, uh, so many people reached out to me after our conversation about multipliers last year on episode 305. In the course of that conversation, you and I had talked about rookie smarts. uh, And as I got in this book, I was just so struck by how relevant this is for so many of us, and yet how many of us struggle with this. And and I think in in a lot of ways, you have two in your career. And I, it was interesting to me learning about your career in the book and starting at Oracle. And you discuss how you weren't really ready for the position of running a corporate university. And I was curious how that experience has framed some of your thinking on this topic. You know, I think most of my career has been a string of these rookie experiences. In fact, so much so that um, when I sent the manuscript for Rookie Smarts off to my publisher at Harper College and, and Hollis Heimbach, my publisher, she said, you know, Liz, your book Multipliers was so you, you know, you just embody that message, which of course made me feel good. And then she said, but I think Rookie Smarts, that's now really you. And, and so what she was basically saying is like, Liz, you're so unqualified. <laughs> what, what, what you're saying is like, that's kind of how you do life in your career. Because the, the, the point, you know, the message of Rookie Smarts is that sometimes we're at our very best when we know the very least, you know, when we're, when we're new, when we're naive, and when we're a rookie. And I really do think, you know, I have just strung together a bunch of rookie experiences, mostly never having a job that I was actually 
qualified for. Now, you know, I never attempted to perform surgery on, you know, some unsuspecting person, but every job I've had has been um, either an enormous stretch or a fairly significant stretch. And I think it was because of that that I decided I was going to go in and study this. You mentioned one of my first big rookie assignments was I, I was a year out of college when they said, hey, Liz, you're now in charge of the training department for this rapidly growing company. The company was Oracle. They were in their adolescence as a software company, doubling in size every year. And they're like, okay, you're now in charge of training for the company worldwide. I'm like, okay, that seems kind of like a grown-up job to me. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember talking to my boss about this. I'm like, are we lacking adult supervision here? Like, and it was a little bit true. It was, they were hiring a lot of people right out of school. And I was worried that this seemed like a grown-up job. And I wasn't, I wasn't a grown-up. I was just, I was a, I was a kid. And and it wasn't that I was young. It was just that this was so new to me. And and I think, you know, I was was like trying to point out to him, I'm like, you do realize that my only qualification for this job is that I've actually recently been at a university. <laughs> that was, you know, it didn't seem like much of a qualification, but what I found was it was the very fact that I didn't have the qualifications that caused me to be good at this. I I had to ask a lot of questions. I had to ask for help. I had to listen. And, and we find when people are operating from a place of, of learning, from not knowing, you know, or, or when we're when we're outside of our area of expertise or on the outer edge of what we know how to do, see this learner's advantage kicks in. I mean, you either stay in a state of cluelessness and you crash and burn in this this rookie assignment, or you end up asking and learning and you know, you don't have expertise, but you mobilize expertise from others and you question assumptions. And And we found there's just so many virtues in how we work when we're new to something that those virtues often make up for a lot of lack of knowledge and skills. We think of experts as these all-knowing, super wise people that never, has to, never have to ask anyone for help. And I just I keep finding examples of how that's really not true. And you research some of the great experts as part of writing this book. And one of the stories that really stuck out for me was the story about Michelangelo and painting the Sistine Chapel. And I was wondering if you could share some of what you discovered when you looked into that story. Well, you know, it was interesting. I was actually on a vacation with my daughters in Italy when I learned and the tour guide explained that the Sistine Chapel was was uh, Michelangelo's very first fresco painting. And, you know, he was very used to canvas and he was really, a you know, a sculptor. And this was his first fresco. And actually, he was nominated for this job by one of his um, competitors in the Florence art scene. And is it, I want to say Raphael, I'm probably going to get it wrong. I'd have to open up the book. But he was actually nominated by this sort of competitive artist because they knew he had never done fresco before and that he would fail. And so he was set up so that this artist could then come and um, heroically save the day once Michelangelo, this sculptor, 
did this, but he, he realized that he didn't have this fresco technique, which is, you know, painting into the wet plaster and then having it harden. It's why it preserves so long. And so he, he brought in a couple people who, you know, knew the fresco te- technique deeply. He worked alongside them. He spent the first couple weeks in learning and experimenting. And once he got it, and he got this technique, you know, he, they were no longer needed. And then he did finish the rest of it solo. But he started this as an absolute rookie and learner. And, of course, we know that, you know, he, he, he did a brilliant job and created one of the masterpieces of the modern world. You know, it's, it's, it's so interesting when you think about, you know, how those of us that are, are considered or, or even in one aspect of our work considered as experts and, um, and how at least so many of the people I've talked to and guests we've had on the show, it seems like more often the case it is that they're asking for help. And I, you know, I'm, I'm fully conscious of the fact that you and I have spent a good part of our careers running corporate training and development programs. So I, I say that being conscious of that when I, I bring you this quote that you mentioned in the book, which struck me very profoundly as well. You wrote, while many corporate training and development programs are anchored in aspiration-based learning, the reality is that we respond better to desperation-based learning. Tell me more about that. <laughs> it, it really is. I think that is a therapeutic comment that I made because I have spent a lot of years trying to outline competency models and skill matrices and here are the things people need to know and and dragging people into classes trying to teach that and we know that there's you know great learning that happens in class but a lot of evaporation of that is people go away not needing those skills not using them immediately and and what we find is that people actually have heightened powers of learning when there's a really short cycle between a learning and applying, meaning we learn best when we're doing. And I think we all know that, but that we actually learn just at our best when we're just a little bit desperate. And it is this desperation-based learning that drives so much of the success that people have in this rookie space. And and I really think it's what happens when we are, are standing at the bottom of a learning curve. And kind of one of two things happens when you are at the bottom of a learning curve and you've got a task and there's a steep learning curve ahead of you, you face a choice. You know, either you give up and you back away or you kind of throw that thing down into first and you grind your way up it. And it's usually the fact that that gap is big that causes people to dig really, really deep. So I, I'm i in no way suggesting that people are always at their best when they're new to something. I think we can cite a lot of examples where people aren't operating with what I call rookie smarts. They're, you know, like all rookie, but no smarts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, where, where people either, you know, at the bottom of that big learning curve, either they give up, say, it's too big, I can't do it, or they operate just with with what's worked in the past and it doesn't work. But we just find more often than not, people are at their best when they're not at the top of their game, but at the bottom of a learning curve. Well, that's actually a perfect lead into something I wanted to ask you about, which is uh, it's really interesting what the research you did showed on how veterans respond to tough situations versus how rookies tend to respond to tough situations. Mm -hmm. What do you see as some of the key differences? Well, when when veterans respond to tough situations, 
we tend to look inside. You know, when we have expertise and we encounter a problem, we tend to look for um, within our own banks of experience and solution. And when rookies tend to encounter a tough situation, we we look we look outward. You know, I mentioned this difference when I was trying to build this corporate university. I didn't know how to do this, but I knew that there were other people who knew how to do it. I went out and spent time with the executive team. I went out and looked at people who were building world-class universities. Um, when I was writing my first book, so Multipliers was my first book. And when I sent the, um, the proposal off to the publisher, I, I wasn't sure whether I needed to make this clear to them. I think it became very obvious that I had never written a book before, that this was this was like my very first piece of writing. I mean, the only thing I had written previous to this book was like a long email note. <laughs> oh. And and because of that, you know, it was funny. My publisher said, you approached writing so different than some of our other authors. And I remember it now saying to her, like, basically, I ask questions as naive as this. I'm like, what is a good management book look like? Hmm. I've never written one. I had read a lot of management books, but I was like, tell me what good looks like. And and I remember asking her, I said, who are your favorite authors? And I didn't mean like the authors that she has read in her life, but of the authors in the Harper Collins in the Harper business portfolio of books, I'm like, who are, who are your favorite authors you've ever worked with and why? And you know, what can I deliver to you that would be amazing? And because I just didn't know. And so basically she said, oh, well, this is what good looks like. We love it when we get this. We love it when we get that. When I submitted the the manuscript, um, my agent came back and told me, she said, they just told me that was the cleanest manuscript they had ever seen. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. And I kind of went about my business. And my agent, um, Shannon, she, she didn't, she thought that I didn't quite process that. And she said, no, you what I'm saying is they've never seen a cleaner manuscript than this. And I don't mean clean as in free from dirty language. I just like, <laughs> you know, like, like structurally clean and like not needing to be copy edited. And I, I just, I couldn't process it. Finally, I realized I didn't know it was an option to give them junk. Like uh -huh. I had never done this before. I didn't realize that's what most authors do is they give them kind of a, a first draft. And I said, Oh, well, I've never done this before. I better not give them something, you know, junky. Let me give them something that's really polished. And I think I probably worked harder, dug deeper because I was a rookie. And because I had listened to exactly what she told me she wanted, I'm like, oh, well, then I'll just do that. What you just illustrated, um, it lines up with one of the quotes I pulled out of the book, which is you writing, the critical skill of the century is not what you hold in your head, but your ability to tap into and access what other people know. The best leaders and the fastest learners know how to harness collective intelligence. And that's exactly what you did when you asked that question of what makes a good book. And, and it strikes me like that's not the way most of us are trained. We are trained to get good grades. We are trained to most of the assessments we do in our lives, even in our careers, are individual assessments. They're not reaching out to others for assistance. I'm curious, how do you... As you've worked with people, what have you seen has been helpful to transition people from that kind of thinking of how do I position myself as an expert to doing exactly what you were talking about of asking questions? Well, part of it is is knowing that when you ask questions, people give you more. 
you know, we find that the best leaders tell less and they ask more. And when they ask more questions, people will give them more. And part of it is realizing that right now we are working in an environment that cycles are spinning so fast that, you know, we don't, we don't even get to face the same problem twice. Like once you figure some, when I started my career, Dave, I, their best practices was all the rage. But I don't think best practices matter a whole lot anymore because we don't get to reuse them. Once we figure out one problem, the problems morph, almost like the way flu viruses seem to be morphing right now. We're constantly having to do things that don't have precedent in that. And we probably don't have enough of that knowledge ourselves. So it's about tapping into the people around us. Um, it's part of the research I did for this book, I looked at how information is coming at us and how information is not only bombarding us, but how quickly that information evaporates. How, In other words, how often we're, we're working in the unknown space. And if you work in a STEM-related field, science, technology, engineering, math-related fields, or in an industry heavily influenced by technology, which is most of us, you know, based on the rate at which information is increasing and the rate at which information decays, meaning things that were once true no longer are true, about 15% of what we know today, you know, one five, not 50%, about 15% of what we know today is likely to be relevant in five years. Mm, It's incredible. So not only are problems right now too complex for any one person to have a solution, but even the things that you know to be true don't stay true long enough. And so it just seems like a logical conclusion that the critical skill that we need is the ability to use what we know, but to check what we know, like, ah, maybe this isn't the full picture. Maybe this is no longer true. Maybe I might be a little bit outdated. And the only way to stay relevant is to be able to harness collective knowledge. Or or perhaps, Dave, I have to admit, maybe it's just the lazy man's approach. <laughs> Which is like you can either try to know everything yourself or you can just stay current by continually pulling in what other people know and refreshing. It's like hitting refresh. Yeah, well, and it, but it, it strikes me as so true what you said of how much knowledge is changing. I, mean, I think about the work I do today, the 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 career didn't exist 10 years ago. Let me think about podcasts and the things online and video conferencing and all that. And uh, so there's there's almost this expectation now if we're going to be successful like you mentioned the quote we have to be asking questions learning growing and um and you said something a few minutes ago which uh, which really struck me too which is there's the smarts in rookie right so it's not just being the rookie and just you know doing whatever uh, but there's a way to be smart about it and i i i sense that there's a there's a right way to ask for help <laughs> and there's a wrong way to ask for help and how to approach this and so i'm i'm wondering as you've coached people on this what are what do you see as some of the helpful guidance on asking for help and and the ways to do it that really do work to that, keeping it rookie, but also smart. Yeah. You know, some people ask for help in a way that you just want to help them. And if you are in rookie mode, you know, your job is to ask for help in a way that activates somebody's mentoring gene. See, I think we all have this sort of mentoring gene that this desire to want to help to coach I mean, it's a rare person who just doesn't have that. We all know that. We're going to put them in like, I don't know, bad, we'll put them in the bad people category for now. But for most people, they want to help. But 
you don't want to act helpless. Nobody really likes helping people who are helpless. Like, oh, gee, I can't, I can't do it. Would you do it for me? Or I brought nothing. Will you bring everything? We want to project um, what I call a state of intelligent learner. So you don't want to project all intelligence, meaning, hey, I've got this, I figured out. And we know what it's like when someone asks for your help and then they tell you that they don't need your help, that they've already know everything. But you don't want to be all learner either, meaning, hey, I know nothing. What do I do? You don't want to project cluelessness because people don't want to waste their time helping someone who might not actually be able to receive it. So what does intelligent learner look like? Intelligent learner looks like asking really good questions, well-informed question, meaning, hey, I've done my research, but now I have a question. Or, hey, I know this, but I don't know that. So letting people know that you're bringing raw intelligence and capability, you're showing good listening, but also an orientation to act. How do you let someone know that you're intelligent, but you want to use their intelligence as well? And I think when you do project that state of intelligent learner, people will turn around, bend over backwards to to help you be successful because it's a good investment of their time. Yeah, I was thinking as you were starting to tell that story, uh, thinking about STEM as well, that so many of the people we've both worked with over the years, you know, have very high technical skills and are subject matter experts in particular areas. And I've, I've certainly seen young people or inexperienced people come into organizations and say, oh, you know, these, these experienced folks aren't taking the time to mentor and coach me. And then at the same time, I've also seen other people come in with the same level of experience, but somehow they get a lot of coaching from those people. <laughs> and so I love what you said about we all have that gene for mentoring and coaching. So it's not that for most people that's not there. It's how are you approaching talking to the quote unquote expert about getting help and, and but bringing something more to the conversation just then I want you to do it for me. Right. Intelligent questions. And then there's also a few behavioral things that you might do. One of my favorite leaders that I studied, he, he, he likes to, to ask people when he talks to them, would you mind if I take some notes? <laughs> Another um, way, this is actually one that I learned someone who did just a great job working with Steve Jobs. And when she would um, get to a point where she was sort of at an at impasse with Steve, where he was very opinionated about something, she would always ask Steve, would you mind if I, you've given me some new ideas here, things to think about, would you mind if I go away and think on them for a couple of days and come back to you with a new solution? Like who on this planet doesn't like hearing someone say, hey, you know what, could I take some notes based on what you're saying? Or, hey, can I go think about what you've given me for a couple of days and come back to you with a solution? Mm. You know, they're, they're all ways of projecting intelligent learning or learner or saying, I'm actually coachable. You know, some people get more coaching than others. And I think it's because they project intellectual curiosity. They project a bias for action and they project a willingness to, to really listen to what people are giving them. Mm. And if you do that while you're in the rookie zone, you're good. You're good to go. Yeah. And, and, and yet you're going to make mistakes too, right? So how do you recover when you do something as a rookie? And maybe you're not even a rookie anymore, but you do something that doesn't isn't the right call or you make a mistake or maybe even cost the company money or a customer. 
when you think about coaching people in recovery, where do you start? Yeah, there is an art form to how you recover from making mistakes. And and some of the, the literature on this says that people, when they make mistakes, when they recover well, they end up with more satisfied customers. And, and you, by extension, you would say colleagues than if they had never made the mistake. Dave, on this, so I'm going to go back to, um, I was asked once to write a blog on a big mistake I had made. And so I thought about all the mistakes I've made in the business world. And then I went back even further and thought about one of the biggest mistakes I've made in my life. And I mean, I, I've done, I've screwed a bunch of things up, but this is one where I just remember painfully screwing something up. So I was probably 17 years old at the time. I had grown up sewing. I was actually a really good seamstress growing up. And I got a job working at a bridal shop. This is in San Jose, California, and it was a bridal shop in a mall. So this is probably not your like fanciest, highest end bridal shop. But I got a job as the seamstress. So my job was to alter wedding gowns and, you know, bridesmaids dresses, mothers dresses. So I'm 17 years old. Like in, in hindsight, I still cannot believe they hired a 17 year old kid. And I bet there's someone listening to our conversation who's probably about to get married. And and I'm going to tell you, like, this this story might traumatize you. Um, (laughs) Just the fact that I was 17 years old. So this woman, her name was Kathy, she came in and she had fallen in love with this dress. And it was a dress that couldn't be ordered. It was like a size 12 dress. She is size six. I look at it, I'm like, oh yeah, I can do that. I can turn a size 12 dress into a size six. I alter it. She comes in for a fitting and magically it fits her perfect. Like I had done this killer good job on this dress. We were all very pleased with it. That was several months before our wedding. She comes in four days before her wedding to pick up her dress. I'm in the back sewing, working on some other things. I am a high school kid, remember this. And they call me um, back and they say, oh, Kathy's here to pick up her dress. Like you've pressed it, haven't you, Liz? Well, I actually didn't like pressing the dresses because somehow at 17, I was a little bit of a prima donna about this, where I had decided pressing dresses was just a little bit below my skill level. Like mm. <laughs> <laughs> blow my pay grade. I was probably making minimum wage, but you know, somehow that was sort of beneath me that I didn't feel like I should press the dresses. So, well, you can imagine what I did. I'm like, Oh, she's out there. Let me like, so I turned the iron on to hot and I set the iron down on the bodice of this dress and I watch the entire bodice. So for the the men who are listening to this, the bodice is like the upper part. This is the chest part of the dress. And I watched the bodice of her dress shrivel under the iron. Oh no. Yeah. Just like I melted the front part of her dress, like not a part that you can hide during a wedding. I mean, like it just, and I'm not talking like I, I made it like a little shiny, kind of a little burn mark. I'm talking about it melted away to gone. Oh, wow. Four days before her wedding. And I looked at that and, you know, I'm probably trying to imagine like, is there a back exit? Like, can I run? Can I hide? Like, and I realized there was only one way that I was going to like, so I just walked out there and and I remember this very, like it was yesterday. I said, Kathy, um, something bad has happened. I said, I've just ruined your wedding gown. I was ironing it and I melted a hole in it. And I said, it's not a small hole. It's a big hole. Like I've melted the front part of the bodice and I'm seeing her eyes get really big. And you can't just go out and tell a bride you just ruined her dress. Right. And so I said, 
what I've done is bad. I said, but I will fix this. I said, if you come back in two days, I will have your dress completely remade for you and it will be as good as new. And, you know, again, I'm a high school kid. I've got classes and things and other. So, but I just, I get on this and I have to go all around town shopping to get the right kind of fabric to replace it. And I rebuilt her dress. She came and and she picked it up. And I mean, she really should have punched me. Honestly, she should have punched me when I first gave her this news, but she came But I remember what she said. She's like, Liz, you can fix this, can't you? And I'm looking her straight in the eye. I'm like, Kathy, I will fix this for you, and it will be perfect. Mm. And I did. And when she picked it up, like, she hugged me, and she was thanking me and, like, sent me pictures from the wedding. And I'm like, man, this is someone who should have punched me. I mean, really should have given me a black eye. And here she was thanking me for having fixed this problem. And for me, it taught me something really important, which is when you screw something up, like you admit it, like don't hide, like admit it, fix it fast, you know, and solve the whole problem rather than just fix your piece, like give someone back a full on solution. And I think when you do that, it it shows again, intelligent learner, like we all know we're going to make mistakes. And when people are in this rookie zone doing something important and hard and doing it for the first time they're going to make mistakes but what we find the magic of rookies is they tend to admit it faster and they tend to fix it faster because they can't rest on their reputation it's like what we see with political leaders and people and celebrities it's it's rarely the thing they messed up it's the cover-up that brings them down it's the mm-hmm. not asking not admitting a mistake like you were talking about yeah and your word is is great is that we 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 get into a cover-up because when you screw up with lots of experience you're you're falling off a pedestal whereas when you screw up and you're a bit of a rookie you're kind of just falling it's more like you're tripping than than falling. You're just kind of falling from the floor. And and so we have to learn to recover like rookies to say, my bad, I'm going to fix it and I'm going to fix the whole thing. And we have to fix it really fast. One of the things I've been really conscious of doing this work over the last few years is just how much in spite of knowing otherwise, when we're in the situations and when we've got the expertise or whatever it is, it's it's so easy to fall into that pattern. What have you seen for people who seem to buck the pattern a bit and and actually do approach something with more of a rookie mindset and are willing to admit mistakes and ask for help? Mm. What's different about them? You know, there is something that's different about them. These people that I call perpetual rookies. And some of it is they maintain a mindset and they have like um, mental practices that they use to keep themselves like they um, in this rookie state, they periodically audit their assumptions. They spend time with other rookies. I call it surfing with the amateurs. It was inspired by Bob Hurley, who said, you know, uh, this is Bob Hurley, who founded Hurley International. that makes all the skate and surf stuff. He says, you know, when I get stuck at work. I grab my board and I go down to the beach and I surf, but not with the professionals that we sponsor. I go surf with the kids and I let them renew me. And and there's a whole set of practices to help you keep thinking like a rookie. But I'll tell you, Dave, here's my, my favorite practice. And it's, I think it's 
it's a, a little bit the lazy man's practice, but I think it's the smart man's practice as well, is just continue to say yes to things you don't know how to do. I call it the naive yes. And as we talked about, I feel like my career has been just like a string of naive yeses is continue. If you want to continue to think like a rookie, you need to continue to be a rookie, meaning leaving the comfort of your expertise and saying yes to things you don't know how to do, which can be hard on our egos. But here's what makes us easy is the world we are surrounded with things that we don't know how to do because things are moving so fast. Most of what we know how to do is in the rearview mirror now. So all you have to do is uh, say a willing yes, keep working outside of your area of your expertise, and it will keep you thinking and acting with the hungry, hopeful approach to working that rookies are so good at. I love the example you cite in the book too of, I think you called it throw away your notes and you shared a story about one of the top business professors who would would throw away his notes every semester in order to get the newest, best thinking for his students. I just love that. Oh, yeah. It was a very dear mentor of mine. His wife found his notes in the trash bin one day at home, and she realized these weren't just his research notes. These were his handwritten teaching notes. And when she recovered them and gave them to him, you know, C.K. Prahalad, he was at the University of Michigan, he thanked his wife for for you know, saving the day, but he said, no, I throw them away on purpose because I think my students deserve my best thinking every semester. And it was why he was such a brilliant and beloved professor, is he was always learning. People used to say, oh yeah, when CK would give a presentation, other presenters would leave the conference, but not CK, he'd kind of roll back and sit in the front seat so he could learn from the next presenter. Speaking of learning from the experts, uh, last time you were on, I asked you about what you'd failed at, and you told a wonderful story about your mother, which I loved. I'm curious, what have you, as you've been doing this work now over the last uh, number of years, and especially since the books have come out, what have you changed your mind on? You know, I have changed my mind on geniuses. You know, I used to love to work with people who were just brilliant. I don't know. Maybe I felt like I could soak a little bit from them. You know, I have over the last 25 years, I have seen that, you know, working with someone who's a genius maker is a lot more valuable than working with someone who's just a pure genius. I've changed my mind on that. I've changed my mind about the speed of work that I used to think it was about doing things fast. And um, I've learned to slow down and be more thoughtful in my work. And I'll offer one more. And, um, you know, like probably many people right now, I'm very concerned about what's happening in our political discourse. I'm very concerned about the, you know, the polarization. And I think what I've mostly changed my mind about lately is that there's a, a right way to do things, that certain policies are better than others. And I look at the political situation in the United States, and I've kind of given up thinking that maybe one approach to policy is better than others. And I think how we work is more important than the output of our work right now. I think that's what I'm really changing my mind on. Oh, I love that. Well, there's so much I love about you and your work and all you've taught us over the last couple of appearances on the show. And I, I think probably the, the 
greatest thing is uh, just uh, what a wonderful student you are uh, of of your work and of life and of of uh, learning about others. And I just um, I love the orientation you have about being a rookie, but being a rookie in a smart way. So thank you so much for that gift. And I hope folks will go check out the book Rookie Smarts. And you have a, a TED Talk out there too, which uh, will probably inspire folks as well. Yeah, the TED Talk isn't really about rookie smarts per se, but it's about how do we live and work with childlike wonder? Um, how do we how do we work with curiosity and a wonder about what's happening in the world? Well, thank you so much for your time and wisdom. I'm so grateful for it. And I uh, hope folks will go uh, check out Rookie Smarts. Dave, thank you for your work with um, leadership and coaching and inspiring a generation of learners as leaders. So thank you. Hey, you got a rookie on your team right now? This may just be the conversation to pass along to them. Thanks in advance if you do. Lots of related conversations to today's episode, especially conversations that'll be helpful to new leaders and rookies out there. Back on episode 143, we had a conversation on how to get better, way better, in fact, at accepting feedback. Sheila Heen, who's one of the original authors of the book Difficult Conversations, was on that episode teaching us about how do we accept feedback? That is a challenge that a lot of us run into, especially if we are rookies and especially if we're new leaders. So if that is you or someone that you're working with right now, that is definitely an episode to listen to. You can find it under the feedback button on the Coaching for Leaders website library under podcast. Also, there's a button for new leaders there. You'll find that episode there as well. You'll also find under that new leader section, episode 257, how to manage former peers. My friend Tom Henschel and I had a conversation a while back on if you have taken the role or someone you're working with has taken the role on where they're now managing people they used to be peers with and uh, probably have some friendships there. How do you navigate that? Uh, Episode 257 is a great place to start. Another episode that is under the new leaders tab is how to lead part-time staff, episode 289. Chris DeFirio was on that episode talking and teaching us some of the key strategies for managing part-time folks. New leaders do tend to more often uh, step into leadership roles where they are managing part-time folks, at least more often uh, sometimes than even full-time folks. So that's a really helpful starting point. And for anyone who's managing part-time staff, episode 289 will be of value to you. And then also I'd recommend episode 305. That is the last uh, time Liz was on the show. And she talked during that episode on how to deal with the diminishers. We centered that conversation around her bestseller, multipliers. If you haven't heard episode 305, I would absolutely recommend it. You can get access to all of those past episodes by going to the coachingforleaders.com website, setting up your free membership. It'll give you access to the entire podcast library, all of those topics, searchable, plus a ton more, including my book notes, my library. There's so much up there. So check that out. Hey, next week, I am glad to welcome back to the show, Tom Henschel. He's going to be returning to teach us what we need to know about doing 360-degree feedback. Tons that's going to come out of that conversation. Many people have been asking about that in the last few months. So join us next week for that conversation. Have a great week and see you next Monday.